story. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. You recall the words of Jesus when he said, Broad is the gate that leads to destruction, and many there go in thereat, but narrow is the gate that leads to life, and precious few there be that find it. Well, today on Viewpoint, we're going to take a look at one of the major gateways to deception. One of the major gateways to deception. It's the cultural gateway. The cultural gateway to deception. And, interestingly, prevailing culture is likely, yes, even the widest gate, under the broad road to deception and destruction. Not only is it a dangerous gateway, because it's wide, but because it's so attractive, alluring, and overwhelmingly trafficked by others. And the sheer pressure of the multitudes passing through creates an almost irresistible impulse to, shall we say, go with the flow. We've all heard the cultural demand to go in thereat, and lamentably, most are heeding the call. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want to feel that we're part of the in-crowd. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be ostracized or marginalized. And so we conform. We first follow reluctantly. But with each compromising step, the cultural lure grows stronger like a powerful magnet until we're embraced fully by its seductive arms. And that's, unfortunately, where we find ourselves right now, especially as Western Christians on the near edge of the second coming. So I welcome you to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. It's conversation, as always, with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms. And today we talk about this cultural seduction. Interestingly, the word seduction is found in the Bible. In fact, uh, other words similar to that, uh, seducing spirits and so on. And the word deception is also used in fact, those words are used almost interchangeably. You may recall that two days before his crucifixion, Jesus was sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives overlooking the eastern gate of Jerusalem, and his disciples asked him what would be the nature of the end of the age. And Jesus answered them. He gave them a very succinct answer, and he said, Take heed that no man deceive you. Now, another way we could retranslate that would be, take heed that no man seduce you. Why does the Bible use the word seduction? Why would the Bible, over and over again, use sexual terms to describe spiritual conditions? But it does. Over and over again, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the Bible uses sexual terms to describe spiritual conditions. It's amazing. In fact, my wife and I have been reading through the book of Jeremiah in the course of our reading every morning in the scriptures, and uh, the apostle, excuse me, the prophet Jeremiah cries out on behalf of the Lord and uh, talks to Israel and Judah and is uh, giving God's viewpoint concerning their condition. 
And he says, My heart within me is broken because of the prophets, for the land is full of adulterers. Both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. And I've seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. None turns from his wickedness. They're all to me as Sodom and the inhabitants of Gomorrah. Wow. So God, who betrothed Israel to himself, sees himself as a jilted lover, a jealous God, he his own bride. Israel has fornicated with the worldly culture and committed adultery, both physical and spiritual. So Jeremiah responds and he says, Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. They're not valiant for the truth, declared Jeremiah. They will deceive everyone his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They've taught their tongues to speak lies. Through deceit they refuse to know me, says the Lord. Their tongue is an arrow shot out, it speaks deceit. Said the Lord, shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? Wow, that's tough talk for troubled times, isn't it? But the devil's always in the details. So is the truth. And the common problem that we have in reading and processing the words of the prophets there in the Old Testament, however potent they may be, is that they are generally interpreted to apply to somebody else, somebody other than me, or to some group, or some other than my group, or my church, or my culture, or my situation. So it enables us to do a little do do a sleight of hand on ourselves, and to mentally and spiritually dodge the arrow that was supposed to pierce our own hearts with the Lord's specific and passionate wooing and warning that's applicable to our own lives. The problem is that if we per- persist in this kind of a dance away from the truth and dodge from God's warning arrows, you know, the proverbial shot across the bow, well, God will eventually abandon us as he did with Israel and Judah. To our false lovers and our adulterous affairs with the surrounding culture, adulterous deception may then direct and ultimately determine our destiny. And that's why this is so important. That's why it's so serious. And that's why we're talking about it here today on Viewpoint. This is not my viewpoint. This is God's viewpoint. And we're being very explicit about it. And then we're applying it in such a way that we can't miss the message. One of the problems with reading uh, the Scriptures, the Old Testament or New Testament, is that we tend to read it, as I said, in such a way that it's always talking about somebody else. So we self-justify, and in self-justifying, we, we actually find a way to excuse ourselves from the very message that God's trying to get through. Well, here we are on the near edge of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We see everything going on around us. We see our times, and yet we're still prone to do this cultural dance. Why are we prone to do that? Why is it that the culture has such power over us? It's like a, an unbelievable magnet that just draws us in 
to its every movement, to its every way, and so we dance with the culture. The unfortunate thing is that when we dance with the culture, we're also dancing with the devil. (laughs) And so God is not ignorant of these things. In fact, so much is he not ignorant that in the New Testament, he says, you know what? God sees it all. He sees our downsittings and our uprisings. In fact, everything is naked before him with whom we have to do. Everything is naked. Oh. So in other words, we can't engage in a cover-up that will somehow prevent God from seeing things the way they really are. So today we talk about cuddling with the culture. Are you cuddling with the culture? Are you sure? We'll be right back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. Believe it or not, many times over the past, uh, say, 10 years, Vladimir Putin has made statements, he's made public statements, even a public address uh, to the leadership there in Russia, in which he has compared Russia's morality with the morality in the West, and particularly in the United States of America. He has said that Russia is becoming the moral leader of the world. And when he talks about moral leader of the world, he's talking about the Christian faith. Now, this may come as a shock to you, and we can find all different ways to equivocate with what he said, but the reality is that Vladimir Putin, unlike America, unlike all the other Western nations, has decided to repudiate the practice of homosexuality. That's right. He's repudiated all of this uh, uh, wokeness that has increasingly defined Western thought and the thought in America and even in our churches. He's repudiated it openly. Also, he's severely limited abortions. Now, you may not like other things about Vladimir Putin, And I'm not here to tout his virtues. On the other hand, he has a point. He's looking at the Western world. He's looking at the United States of America. He's looking at the entire Western world, which is the resurrected Roman Empire of the end times. And he's saying, you guys have gone to hell. You have abandoned your Christian Roots, you've abandoned your Christian foundation. Is it possible that in all of his, with with all of his own dark sides, that Vladimir Putin has seen something that we're unwilling to see in ourselves? Just not trying to justify Vladimir Putin in no way. 
But he does have a point. When every one of the Western nations, all of them, the whole of Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, America, Canada, Scotland, Ireland, they have all abandoned the faith once delivered to the saints in major ways and have embraced a very contra culture. In other words, they have cuddled with the culture. Have you? Don't answer too quickly. Don't answer too quickly because you see, we're seduced into this broad gate, the broad way that leads to destruction. Culture is a powerful and pervasive life influence. We know that. And with the exception of the laws of nature, like the law of gravity, the culture in which we live exerts the greatest influence in our lives during our earthly sojourn here. With perhaps the exception for some, of the authority of the Word of God and their relationship with Him. So this power and force of culture is so great that it can literally lord it over our lives. And when culture becomes lord, guess what happens to Christ? He's no longer our master, but becomes only our mascot. Now, that's unfortunate, but it has it has become true. It has become true increasingly. And as I have grown up in the church in America, my father being a pastor for 50 years and having grown up in a number of different denominations, uh, evangelical denominations, and then also since uh, having left home and being married, have been in a number of other different denominations and uh, various uh movements around the country, I have pretty much seen the underbelly of the body of Christ and know and can read the church like the back of my hand. I think those experiences were necessary for me to be able to speak as I do with a certain measure of authority and insight here on this program, because the message is not to the world. The message is to the church. All of the warnings and wooings of Scripture are not to the world. They are condemned already, the Scripture says. Jesus said that. So all of the warnings are to professing believers, God's warmest audience. And that's why it grieves him so much. Because his warmest audience, supposedly those that are married to him, those that claim to be his bride, are frolicking and fornicating with the culture. And it tears up the heart of the Lord. So, you say, well, didn't didn't Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Well, yes, I will never leave you nor forsake you, but you can leave him. He didn't say you couldn't leave him. In fact, he said many will. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. Only those who do the will of my Father will be received as part of my bride and family, he said. 
Interesting. We don't hear much preaching or teaching about that these days because it doesn't match our cuddling with the culture. And every culture has its own imperatives. And their their actions and attitudes and beliefs and behaviors that are considered a, a given for our particular culture. So we might just say, well, this is just what we do. Or this is just the way we think. But the problem is that these cultural mandates by themselves are neither good nor bad, righteous nor unrighteous, except to the extent that they require you and I to have thinking or behavior that puts us in conflict with what God has revealed as his standards for our attitudes and actions. So people become confused in trying to sort out that which is their prevailing culture requires versus that which Christ requires. Maybe you're having that problem yourself. Maybe you're seeing that problem with your kids, with your grandkids. I'll tell you, we are. We have 10 grandchildren. And one of the greatest concerns that we have is the cultural pull and mandate on our grandchildren. And they make choices. And there are costs to those choices. You make choices to favor the culture over Christ, I dare say. And there's a cost to that. Some costs are more severe than others. And this this cultural influence is so strong that it often prevails in the life of professing Christians. So given a choice, well, we, we frequently opt for cultural acceptance and convenience over the ways that God has clearly defined for his kingdom. Right? So, from God's viewpoint, if you're a true follower of his only begotten son, Jesus, your kingdom is not of this world. Isn't that what Jesus said to Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate said, are you a king? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Question, is your kingdom of this world? Because according to the scriptures, you and I are strangers and pilgrims in this world, largely alien to the earthly culture in which you find yourself. Speaking of aliens, by the way, a little diversion, a prominent Harvard astronomer now has come out and said, aliens must have created the world. That's right, aliens. That's the default position of atheists or evolutionists. Aliens. But you and I are called, if we're followers of Christ, are called aliens in this world. Abraham, the father of the faith, was called a stranger and a pilgrim, an alien in the world. So remember, the Apostle Paul said that we're to be ambassadors of the kingdom of Christ. In other words, our primary loyalty is not to the kingdoms of this world, but to the kingdom of Christ. So here's the question, that I, a rhetorical question that I have for you. Where is your primary loyalty? I'm not talking about in theory. We're talking about in practice. The decisions, the values, the commitments, 
What would your children say? What would your grandchildren say? What would your spouse say about your primary allegiance and loyalty? Are you an ambassador of the kingdom of Christ? You see, an ambassador is one who represents a kingdom to another. So we're called to be ambassadors because we're not of this world. We are representatives of Christ to and amidst an other world here. So we're said to be in the world, but not of it. So, there's a fella in the Old Testament. He was the nephew of Abraham. His name was Lot. And uh, they did a little sojourn coming out of Ur of the Chaldees and uh, traveled together, and they grew rather prosperous, uh, so much so that the servants and shepherds of Lot were in conflict with the shepherds uh, and servants of Abraham. And they were starting to squabble, and it wasn't a pleasant thing. So Abraham said, okay, we're not going to be able to do this together anymore. Uh, here's what I want you to do. Uh, we're going to separate, and you can take whichever direction you want to go. You can go east, or you can stay here in Israel. So the Bible says that Lot lifted up his eyes and looked out towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And he thought it was a pretty cool place. And so the Bible says he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's not just that he put his tent up. No, it's that he set his affections and his goal toward, he was drawn toward the culture of Sodom. Now, he didn't buy into all of the culture of Sodom because they were Sodomites. But he he, he kind of liked a lot of the, uh, it was the going place. And his wife was really infatuated with Sodom. And his daughters actually married a couple of guys from Sodom. And when God tried to pull Lot and his daughters, his family, out of Sodom because he was going to destroy it, the husbands of his daughters refused to come. In fact, as Lot was leaving... The angel told them not to look back. In other words, do not turn your affections back to Sodom. But his wife looked back and made history. In fact, so much did it make history that Jesus in the book of Luke says concerning the end times, remember Lot's wife. Now, what did Jesus want you to remember? What did he want us to remember about Lot's wife? Don't allow your affections to be drawn to the spirit of the world. And yet that's exactly what's happening among professing Christians. This is the reason why, increasingly, starting with the mainline churches and then moving now into the evangelical churches 
a gradual acceptance of the practice of sodomy. The very thing that God, reason why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, the church is now embracing. Pastors are embracing, thinking that it's the loving thing to do. Well, if it was the loving thing to do, then why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? No, it was the cultural thing to do, but it wasn't the loving thing to do. Even though you had that loving feeling, it still wasn't the loving thing to do. And the question is, do you and I agree with God's viewpoint? Have you pitched your tent towards Sodom? How about your kids? Pastor, have you been pitching your tent towards Sodom? We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. Saveus.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at saveus.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. Today on Viewpoint, we're dealing with the most important issue, that, at least from, from Jesus' viewpoint, as he discussed with his disciples the coming his second coming, and what would happen before his second coming. The number one thing on Jesus' mind was deception. He said, take heed that no man deceive you. Then in Matthew 24, he went on to increase and up the ante concerning this matter of deception and seduction. After telling us and his disciples that there were going to be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and uh, all of those things and famines and pestilence, and he said, these are just the beginning of sorrows. Then he went on immediately and said, you know what? Many are going to come in my name and deceive many. Now, the apostle Peter worded it a little differently. He said, they're going to come and seduce many. Even pastors and so-called prophets seducing the people. In fact, oftentimes the motivation is for money, for perks, power, perks, and position. Trying to grow their church, thinking it's their church. Jesus said, no, I'll build my church. You make disciples. We decided to build churches and haven't made disciples. And so we've embraced the ways of the culture because we refuse to make disciples, which means to teach them to obey everything that God commanded. That's the Great Commission. That's the heart of the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 30, uh, 28. So before we go further, I want to make available to you 
my book called Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. There are those who have read this book who said, you know what? This is the most important book I have ever read other than the Bible. I said, why is that? Why do you, why do you say that? They said, it's because it's so practical. Because it makes the Bible come alive. So, if you want your Bible to come alive, if you want to really connect with the real issues from God's viewpoint that are troubling his people, including you and your household, you might want to get a copy of the book, Seduction of the Saints. It's an $18 book, yours, for only $15. It's on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. Give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage. No, you're not going to find it on Amazon. You'll find it on our website. Did you hear that? You'll find it on our website, not on Amazon. And there's a reason for that, by the way. So what what is this about? Well, the it's divided into several sections, uh, six in fact. Part one is called the nature of seduction. Asking the question, for instance, can saints be seduced? Part two, the truth about deception. There are five chapters. How do we protect godly paths? What does the road to hell look like? Well, the road to hell is paved on Compromise Corner, by the way. And to cuddle with the culture, you're at Compromise Corner. We talk about synthetic authenticity. We talk about false gospels for synthetic times. The science-isms versus the gospel. Social-isms versus the gospel. Political-isms versus the gospel. Religious pluralisms versus the gospel. Globalism, the anti-gospel. The mark. You know, that mark of the beast? False prophets, false teachers, false hope, and a passion for purity. All in the book, Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a world of deception or seduction. Now, since we are using this term seduction, which is a sexual term, let's take a look at how often these kinds of words are used in the Scripture. The word adultery, for instance, and its various derivatives occur 69 times in the Bible. 35 of those are in the New Testament. 35 are in the New Testament. And interestingly, God chose marriage specifically and the sexual relationship in general to graphically depict his relationships both with Israel and with the church. And the Father... God the Father is ultimately going to present his son 
for consummation at the great marriage supper of the Lamb, a remnant of both Israel and professing Gentile Christians who embrace Yeshua, Jesus as Messiah, and who have made themselves ready, unspotted from the world, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So the bride, the true bride of Christ, must be holy and without blemish. Otherwise, as the Bible says, without holiness, no man will even see the Lord. So the apostle Peter said, Wherefore, beloved, be diligent, that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless, as a chaste virgin to be presented to the Lord. Yet God warned Israel through the prophets, Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, says the Lord. And this problem of spiritual adultery is even more deceptive and dangerous. It is the, you might say, the whorish embrace of the ways of the world and the seductive lure of the methods and messages of the decaying culture that are not seen or recognized us for what they really are from God's viewpoint. And so we're trapped. We've come trapped by the so seeming fun and fascination of the fickle world around us. And we allow our feelings to become our Lord, to direct our path instead of faith. And we end up with the culture lording it over us. So you might be saying, well, okay, how how about getting more specific? What are you talking about? How does this spiritual adultery apply to me in my sphere of living? Well, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Now, one of the things we need to understand, we all need to understand, is what has happened in the church today. For the past 60 years or so, the methods and message of ministry have changed. They've changed in order to placate or pander to the market rather than the master. Whatever seems relevant to produce sales in a church driven by the carnal culture rather than by Christ of the cross. So the message of the cross has become a casualty to the siren call of the culture. Preaching toward felt needs as perceived by culturally driven seekers has increasingly failed to meet their true spiritual needs as defined by their creator. So as Time Magazine said, back in 1993, Americans are looking for a custom-made God, one made in their own image. It's the seeker-sensitive movement of the last generation or two, fueling the church growth movement that has been culturally driven rather than Christ-driven. The modern message is not the pursuit of holiness, but the pursuit of happiness. So you have phrases like, your best life now. A book written by the pastor of the largest church in America. Also, the same title used by Oprah Winfrey. So it's not just physical adultery that God's concerned about. It's spiritual adultery. 
but it's manifested in the breakup of the most important relationships from God's viewpoint in the world, starting with our marriages. The unparalleled breakup of marriages in American culture. So much so that marriage now for this uh, next generation is not even the predominant family structure. It's cohabitation. And that's true even for many of our young people in the church. So we become spiritually salacious. Let's take a look at some facts. We're going to take a look at some facts after this break coming up. A portrait of Christian sex. A portrait of Christian marriage. How the church has become a brothel even according to a title in Christianity Today. How did it happen? How did these things happen? Why is it that the 42nd president of the United States declared with unabashed arrogance the first president to knowingly and intentionally address an exclusively homosexual audience declared in Southern California... In 1997, we are redefining in practical terms the immutable ideals that have guided us from the beginning. And he pretended to be a Methodist Christian. We are redefining in practical terms and the culture the immutable or unchangeable ideals that he admitted have guided this country from the beginning. That was the President of the United States. Then, a Republican president came along, George W. Bush, and said that all religions worship the same God while claiming to be a Christian. Then Barack Obama came along and said, we're not a Christian nation. And those are the political representations. The same things happen in the spirit of the church. We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Again, I welcome you back to Viewpoint. I want to make available the book, Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. That's exactly the world we live in. It's like quicksand, spiritual quicksand, and it is sucking. You can hear the great sucking sound uh, as 
professing Christians and their pastors are being lured into the ways of the world. It is the broad way that leads to destruction, and many there be that are going therein. Let's take a look at, uh, give a, a reality test here. Over the past 40 years or so, uh, as we look just at the sexual aspect of our nation and the church. Now, there are many other aspects concerning the spirit of the world. It's not just sexual. But we don't have time to go into all those, and you need to get a copy of the book to understand the vast ways in which you and I are being seduced. When you read the book, you're going to say, whoa, how could I have missed that? How could I have missed that? That's exactly what's happening. And that's what's happening to my family. Portrait of Christian sex. Two-thirds of Christian singles admit they're not virgins. 61% of students who signed abstinence cards that true love waits admitted breaking their pledge. But of the remaining 39% who said they kept their pledge, 55% of them had oral sex and didn't consider it to be sex. We're talking about Christians now. Evangelical college students do not consider anal intercourse to be sex and therefore indulge in it accordingly. 34% of Christian women and 60 to 70% of Christian men admit seeking out pornography. 37% of pastors admit struggling with internet pornography. 20% of pastors admit to an affair while in the ministry. Cohabitation increased 72% from 1990 to the year 2000. The greatest increase was within the Bible built. Now cohabitation has increased way over a thousand percent. Portrait of Christian marriage. By 1996, divorce in the church was 4% higher than the national average. By 1997, Divorce in the Bible Belt was 50% higher than the national average and still is. By the year 2000, divorce among pastors equaled their parishioners, the second highest of all professions. By 2005, both the Church of England and the Assemblies of God overturned historic doctrinal convictions to conform to Jezebel's cultural mandate permitting pastors and parishioners to divorce and remarry even if their spouse was still living. Which... Jesus called adultery, by the way. Christianity Today said sex beyond the bounds of true biblical marriage is embodied apostasy. Jeremiah the prophet responded to that. He said, they were not all ashamed, neither could they blush. So Christianity Today had a title. How the American Church Became a Brothel. How did it happen? Well, the dangerous drift of destruction began, as, as many of us know, in the 1960s with a massive truthquake. It was like the spirit of the French Revolution, born of satanic enlightenment. And it came out with this massive philosophical and spiritual uh, tectonic activity. Everything was shifting, overturning the truths of eternity that had stabilized the social order. And... Uh, 
So people began to uh, cavort carnally following basic instinct rather than basic inspiration of God's eternal word. So, bastard children now fill our churches, purporting to resist the devil but refusing to submit to God. And the apostasy of adultery is almost complete. As with the natural, so with the spiritual now. So the devil's dance steps to seduction were actually quite simple. We fail to resist because we, like a teenage damsel, yearn for cultural acceptance. It was not that pastor and people intended to go to bed with the world. We just yielded to its titillating advances, finding ourselves enraptured with the temporal thrill of eating the forbidden fruit. Well, as it's written, there are pleasures of sin for a season. Divorce was virtually non-existent in the broader culture, and in the church it became fashionable. Feelings replaced an anchoring faith. Pastors fell in line with the culture of mandate, not willing to resist the people. So it became, as the scripture said, like people, like priest. That resulted in a divorce rate among our pastors now equaling that of their parishioners, the second highest of all professions in America. What do you make of that? We all reason God wants me happy. He wouldn't want me to remain faithful to the spouse to whom I had vowed loyalty till death do us part, if it would mean, well, that I might not be able to seek self-fulfillment. So pastors willing to content the people like Pontius Pilate washed their hands, crucified Christ afresh by assisting the people in cavorting with the culture, authorizing their serial divorces and remarries, which Jesus had called adultery. calling them manifestations of mercy, answers to prayer, and divine second chances. Interesting. Our affair with the worldly culture has had inevitably led to a virtual divorce from the Lord whose name we yet bore. We now cohabit with the world. So the deception is almost complete. Our nakedness was revealed to the sexually craven culture. And the church, purporting to be betrothed to Christ, had betrayed the lover of her soul. Grace became disgrace. And the Lord stands at the door and knocks. So what do we do? I tell you, uh, in the book of Revelation, it talks about Jezebel. You suffer that woman Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication. It's a warning to the all-time church, but more specifically to us as the end-time church, friends. And that spirit of Jezebel is a very jealous spirit, it competes with a jealous God for your affections. And Jesus warned about her. Warned about that spirit. But in the face of this seductive spirit that's calling you into bed with the culture, 
God says, My grace or enabling power is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. To the married person, he says, Drink waters out of your own sister. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. Don't get involved in pornography. Don't get involved in these uh, pornographic romance novels, ladies. Flee fornication and all sexual immorality. It's not... Uh, it's, it's of the culture. Know that your bodies are the members of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. Flee means to run from sexual temptation, not to dance with it. Sexual sin is deadly, both physically and spiritually. It's If you think COVID is dangerous, sexual sin is far more dangerous. It's a virulent, like a cancer. It metastasizes rapidly through your body and the body of Christ. It has to be removed individually and corporately. And to fail to deal with it is deadly. It's a dance with eternal destruction. And we're mandated as Christians to put away unrepented wickedness from among us. Failure to deal decisively with cultural fornication, spiritual adultery, and marital infidelity is going to bring the wrath of God on the children of disobedience. So here is what the Apostle Paul warned about. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor practicing homosexuals, nor abusers of themselves with mankind shall inherit the kingdom of God. So what do we have to do? We have to repent. Adultery and fornication will keep you from the eternal presence of God. Jesus, there in the book of Revelation addressing that Jezebelish spirit that had invaded the church at Thyatira, said this, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she did not repent. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the innermost mind and the heart's and I will give every one of you according to your works. Here's a little message from Jesus' brother. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that the friendship of the world is enmity or at war with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Then resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw nigh, 
in unadulterated intimacy to the Lord, and he will draw nigh to you. But a double-minded or two-souled man is unstable in all his ways. So receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. You've lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. You've nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Behold, the judge stands before the door. And he says, surely, I come quickly. Preparing the way of the Lord for history's final hour, friends. That's what we do here on Viewpoint in so many, many different ways. Today, a very specific and uh, passionate and perhaps painful message to professing believers. We all live in this culture. We're swimming in the same murky, poisoned, adulterous waters. But we dare not drink of them. It's time to really take these issues seriously and to assist you along the way. I have written the book, Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. I can almost guarantee you've never read another book like it. It's written for this moment in time. It's written to help God's people to overcome in the evil day and having done all to stand to stand. It's an $18 book, yours for $15. It's on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. Give us a call, 1-800-SAVE-USA. Write to us at Save America Ministries at $5 for postage and handling. I urge you to become a partner with us. I urge you to become a partner with us. Let's get the message out far more broadly. What's necessary? Resources. That's what's necessary. But until then, until the greater resources, we do what we can with what we have. God bless and be a blessing. Remember, submit to God, then resist the devil. God bless and be a blessing. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.